We're in the middle of telling the story of Abraham. That's found in Genesis 12 through uh, chapter 25. Today we're in chapter 18. We're in the second half. Um, and in the second half or the second part, we're going to start with verse 22. You remember the chapter started with Abraham having a visit from three men. It turns out one of those men is the Lord himself. The other two are angels. They have an intimate dinner. God speaks to Abraham and Sarah about the birth, the impending birth of their son Isaac. Then the three men get up to leave. Abraham is a good host, walks out with them some ways. Uh, and uh, then it becomes clear that the Lord has another matter on his mind, radically different and yet connected to Abraham and Sarah's work uh, for their children and for the children that are going to come from their children, the whole Jewish race, and from them the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, words of instruction, because what God's getting ready to do, they need to understand, and future generations will need to understand. He's talking about the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God says he's not going to hide what he's about to do. Verse 17 of chapter 18, he says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's a multi-generational purpose in God explaining what's going to happen in chapter 19. To understand why Sodom is destroyed will be important up to our very day. Then the Lord said in verse 20, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I'm going to bring justice He's communicating to Abraham in a way that Abraham can understand. It will not be based on a lack of information. I know what's going on there. And in saying these things, he is provoking Abraham. Dale Davis, a great Old Testament scholar, said he is he has glue in his words to Abraham uh, that draw him in, that, that, that desire for him to be pulled in this situation and to talk to God about what's going on. It's sort of like if I said to my wife, uh, uh, Tomorrow when I left or whatever, or the next day, I said, Honey, before I come home tonight, I'm going to go buy several new car dealerships and just look around. Now, I wouldn't be just giving her information. I would be expecting a reaction from her. She's either going to say, You're doing what? We have no business even looking for a new car. Or are you sure we ought to get a car? Or, or maybe, hey, I was hoping we'd shop new. I, I don't know, but the point is I'm, I'm trying to get her to engage with me. What do you think about that? And that, I believe, is what God does in many places in the Bible. It's what he's doing with Abraham here. Abraham, let's talk about that. He is drawing him to prayer, and Abraham does pray. It is the first recorded prayer of intercession in the Bible. And the truth is, it's the way God marks his people. True men and women of God are people of prayer. It's how we show that we're connected to the eternal purposes of God. And that's never more so than when we're praying for other people, the needs of others. Many of us are rabid devotees and consumers of all kinds of news, information, trivia. I I know for many years of my life, I watch way too much 24-hour news programs. Just consumed with it. I would not want to, I might answer the Lord for some of the hours that I Spent on that. Many of you are the same way. You're constantly consuming news. And then there's social media, keeping up with what everyone's going on and all the controversies, all the 
Several years ago, many years ago, a couple decades ago, before there were blogs and social media and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, Neil Postman asked this question. He said, how often does it occur that information provided you, and there he's talking about his day on morning radio or television or in the morning newspaper, how often does that information cause you to alter your plans for the day or to take some action that you would not have otherwise have taken or provide insight into some problem that you're required to solve? He says, oh, the weather report may compel you to get your umbrella or, or words about a crime spree may make you double-check your window locks at the night, but generally the news you hear provokes no response. It provokes, motivates no change to your life. It has no impact on your routines. It elicits emotion and opinion, but rarely does it spark action. He describes this problem, it's much worse now than when he wrote it, as a great loop of impotence. News elicits you a variety of opinions about which you can do nothing except to offer them as more news about which you can do nothing. Of course, as Christians, there's always something we can do. We can pray. We can pray. Tim Challies, pastor, wonderful blogger, he says, as Christians, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe there's nothing tried about prayer. To the contrary, we pray before we act. We pray while we act, and we pray after we act. We make prayer instrumental, not supplemental to all we are and all we do. We make prayer a matter of first priority rather than an afterthought. We have an unshakable confidence in its power and effectiveness. Why? Because for Christians, prayer is not merely speaking words into a void. It is not wishing upon a star. It's not summoning positive thoughts to a cold and indifferent universe. Prayer is a child making a request to his loving father. It's a son claiming his generous birthright. It's saved one speaking to his generous and kind savior. Prayer is speaking to the Father because of the love of the Son under the mediation of the Spirit. He says prayer is taking hold of the promises of God and repeating those promises to the one who made them. How could this be anything but powerful and effective and meaningful? I hope this morning, who knows all God wants to do in his word, but I pray above all things that he particularly would prompt you to pray more, particularly for you and I as a church to pray for the needs of others more. And I think out of what we see in Abraham's story, we see four powerful motivations for intercessory prayer that I hope will grip your heart today. Let me start with maybe a self-centered one, almost a selfish one, it would seem. I would encourage you to pray for your sake. For your sake, pray. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Now, the two who continued on, or angels. That becomes clear. You get to chapter 19. They're identified as that. Angels, like us, are servants of the Lord. They are they're created beings made by God. They're servant. In, John, in the Revelation, John gets a message from an angel, and he ends up falling down and trying to worship the angel. In Revelation 19.10, we read this interesting reply from the angel. He says, you must not do that. That is, John's trying to worship him. He says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now, the truth is, the Lord didn't need angels. Well, I don't know why God, why did God send, because he chose to do it. He chose to work through those angels. God could have done what he was going to do there without the angels, but he chose to do that. Did you know the Lord doesn't need people? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me, ultimately, to get his work done. God didn't need Noah's ark to, to save the animals. But he chose, he invested, he, he gave the right and the responsibility and the dignity to Noah and his sons and their saws and their hammers to be a part of his redemptive plan. 
God didn't need Moses to rescue his people from Egyptian bondage, but he chose. And what an honor that he chose Moses to, and his staff and his leadership to be a part of that. God doesn't need missionaries across the world to take the gospel. He doesn't have to do it that way. He could save the people of Central and South Asia. He could save the people, Paul, by the way, he could save the people of Africa. You didn't even have to go over there necessarily. Except God chose you to go. By the way, we're going to hear from you at the end of the service, so be ready, Paul. He's home from Africa, if you don't know that, and we welcome him today. The point is, he has chosen us to do his work. He can save the people in your neighborhood, in your family, in your circle of networks, but he's chosen you. We have part of that work, and of all the ways that we serve him, at the beginning, through it all, and in it all, is prayer, intercessory prayer. And that's where we see Abraham praying in intercessory prayer. This is, of course, one of those rare moments in the Old Testament, before the incarnation of Jesus, where Jesus becomes flesh. In the New Testament, this is one of those moments where God appears to one of his servants in a physical form. And, and we're told that Abraham stood before the Lord. That phrase is not just used here, though. It's used throughout the Old Testament, and it means uh, it has implications even when God's physical presence is not there, but by his presence of his word, by the presence of his spirit, they stand before the Lord. Sometimes that means, uh, it simply means to worship. To stand before God means to worship. Jeremiah 7.10, and then come stand before me in this house. Sometimes it's to, to, to come and, and deal with serious business, a dispute among God's people. They were to do it in the presence of the Lord. Deuteronomy 19.7, then both parties are to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. there in the tabernacle. Same idea when we go to a court of law, and, and at least we used to. I, I guess we still witness this pledge to tell the truth, so help me God, that we, what we say and what we do here is in the presence of the Lord himself. Sometimes to, to stand before the Lord simply means to serve him. So Elijah and Elisha, both those terms are used to describe them. Uh, Elijah said to Ahab, 1 Kings, as the Lord of God Israel lives before whom I stand. Elijah said much the same thing, 2 Kings 5.16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand. So there, it's a variety of meanings to stand before the Lord. But the one that's of interesting to us is that many times in the Old Testament, to stand before the Lord means to do intercessory prayer, to engage in prayer for other people and their needs. I'll mention only the most famous case of that. That would be Moses. It's described in many places, but Psalm 106 has it. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. That is, God said to his, I'm Moses, these wicked, sinful people of mine, I'm going to wipe them off. And remember Moses. Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying him. He stood in the gap. That's what it means to intercede, pray for others, to stand in the gap. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Now, there's another intercessor I haven't mentioned, but he's the greatest intercessor of all. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be many people praying for you, but the one I know is praying for you right now is the Lord Jesus himself, our great intercessor before the Father. And may I say that you and I are never more like Jesus. We're never more in tune with the heartbeat of Jesus than we're engaged in praying seeking God's will and best for other people in prayer. Well, we're told that Abraham draws near. Verse 23, Abraham drew near to the Lord. Of course, you know what we've said about Abraham, Old Testament, New Testament. He's called the friend of God, drawing near to God. It's a requirement for effective prayer. It's a requirement for friendship. It's how friendships are built. It's, it's intimacy. It's sharing life. And in those intimate sharing of life, in, in, in that kind of life together, 
we are changed, we're transformed, particularly when the one we're having to share that friendship with is the Lord himself. And so as you pray, even as you pray for others, you're being changed. You know that. You can't do intercessory prayer and have any meaningful way if your life is corrupted by sin and disobedience. If there's open disobedience and rebellion in your heart, you're never going to be, you're going to be flippant and whatever. You, know, you may get up and spout some words, but I doubt you'll do much real praying. You're, God has to deal with our own sin and our own rebellion and, and those things that we haven't confessed and gotten right to him. True prayer calls for that kind of relationship. And, and, and drawing dear to God makes us see everything including other people, maybe people we wouldn't even care about, in a very different way because we've come to them before the Lord. If you or I, when we are spending real time praying and interceding for others, I'll guarantee you when you come out of that, it not only has an effect on that part of the world, on those people, it has an effect on you. I'm a different father, I'm a different husband, I'm a different pastor, I'm a different person. When I've engaged, there's something about that process of drawing near it's a great benefit. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. The great battle in overcoming temptation is not to turn and fight Satan, it's to turn to God. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. All kinds of benefits that come. When we draw near to God in intercessory prayer, it deepens what we all need more of, and that's humility. Abraham, further down in this prayer, is going to say in verse 27, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord I, who am but dust and ashes. That's what we are, dust and ashes. We're made of dust. Genesis 2-7, The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breast of life. The word dust there means dry earth, loose dirt. That is, our bodies are made from the common chemicals of this earth. They're all just stuff that's everywhere. That's what we are. That's all we are in these bodies. And ashes, another word means soil, dust, describes loose dirt, soil. The truth is that our de- at our death, every one of our bodies that we have pampered and been so much attention to, so much effort to it, there's a day coming where all of us is going to quickly oxidize, either quickly or, or slowly, but one way, it's going to oxidize back into the chemicals from which it was made. We are dust first and ashes last. Part of the consequence of sin. God said to Adam, in his sin, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now that's important for us to know. Because we live our lives like we're the center of the universe. Like what really matters in this old world is me. How foolish. New Testament, James writes, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then you're gone. Psalm 103 says, we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. The wind passes over and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Abraham knows that. He knows that he's just dust and ashes, but he knows something else. He knows that he has a relationship to the creator, eternal God, his redeemer. His Lord has more for him than just what can be done and seen. Our ability to pray Though we are dust and ashes, connects us to our Creator, reminds us that we have an eternal value, and it engages us to join Him in the great privilege of being about His eternal purpose. You know, we have, uh, the last couple decades, the birth of a very militant atheist group of people in this world. Atheists very much believe we're dust and ashes. That's all we are. This one strange coincidence of 
cosmic accident here out of combination of things here we are and here we're going to return and that really nothing in life has meaning and purpose just dust and ashes an atheist friend would say yep absolutely that's the way it is that's all you are of course, it always amazes me how they get worked up in such a religious zeal trying to dispute and fight and fuss with anyone who says, no, there's more to it than that. There's a creator, God, and a designer. Why does it matter so much to them? I never can understand that. They desperately don't want there to be anything more than dust and ashes. So they, their worldview forces them to internally suppress the evidence of their own conscience that screams at them that they are more than that. And it forces them to, to, to suppress the external evidence that's constantly around them of a marvelous designer who has a purpose in their life. Knowing that we are made by God and for God for eternity brings worth and dignity to our life. But there are many people who would trade it all away because they do not want to face the coming judgment of that God that they're going to face. Take a good look at me this morning, folks. Aren't I pretty? Not always going to be that way. I'm going to die. But I want you to know something. The deepest truth about my life is not my death. It is life. It is life in Jesus Christ. Prayer is the activity of my life now that more than anything else reminds me and grounds me in the fact that that one day this body is going to be burned up or it's going to slowly rot and be eaten by worms and stamped into the ground. I am more. And in prayer, and engaging in God's work in prayer, I'm demonstrating and I'm enjoying the privilege of living for those bigger things of God. How small life is, if you don't know that. There are people who only love the world and the things in the world. People who do not know the love of the Father. First John says, for all this in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. But this world is passing away along with his desires it's only those who do the will of the Father, the will of God, who abide forever. And no activity in life more connects you to that simple truth than abiding in the Word of God and in prayer. I am nothing. I come before Him. I see that I am nothing apart from Him. I am dust and ashes. But in knowing Him and living before His presence, I have eternity in view. Pray. For your sake, pray. So you can live with that perspective. Well, as Abraham stands before the Lord to intercede, there are other concerns on his mind. There's really three concerns that are at the heart of, of Abraham's prayer. They're not equal. They are sort of in descending order, but they are all three concerns of his. Abraham's first and greatest concern is for the honor and glory of God and for God's reputation. That's his great concern. So Abraham prays for God's sake. And then he prays for the righteous. His concern is for the righteous who trust in and fear God that they might be who are living in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham prays for the sake of the righteous. And then his third concern, and I guess the least concern, but a real concern that he has, is for the very people there who live in that city that they might be spared because of the righteous who live among them. That they might have more times, opportunities to repent. Abraham prays for the loss. Let's quickly walk through these three other motivations. For God's sake... Not just for your sake, but for God's sake, pray. Verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep them away to the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do just do what is just? So he asked three questions, but all the questions already have the same central concern. 
He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Then he says, are you going to sweep away that place? Are you going to destroy the, all those cities and not spare it if there are 50 righteous who are in it? And then the big question is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord's told Abraham about this wickedness, and clearly yeah, he's going to deal with it. And, and Abraham's question is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I understand probably something about your justice on, on the wicked there. I cheered when the Death Star blew up. I like to see the wicked punished, right? That's what we, don't, don't, don't pretend we care. We care. We want the bad guys dealt with. But what about the righteous? Are you going to kill all the wicked, but the righteous, are going to, they're all going to die the same way? Are you going to wipe the whole place off the face of the mat, even if they're righteous, 50 righteous, innocent people who live there? What kind of judge are you? What kind of justice is that? What am I going to say about you and your justice? I know that you're just, and you do what is right. He's really asking the question found in Job 8.3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And Abraham's already, before he asks the question, he, he knows the answer to the question. He says, of course you're not going to do that. He says in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. I know you're not going to do that, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Oh, this gets into a big question, doesn't it? Now, Abraham, he's right here at the beginning of Revelation. I mean, he, he's, he's in the, not even halfway through Genesis. And there's a great deal. This is a big topic throughout all the scriptures. And, and the clear, brightest answers don't come till, till Jesus and the New Testament. And we might moan about how little he could have known about things that, that we can know about, but you really have to marvel at what he does know, what is so clear right here from the very beginning. Abraham, whatever else he knows, he knows that God does what is right that God is just. You see, and keep this in mind, Abraham's struggle here is simply to understand. Um, some of our students are at universities, are going to universities. I don't know about every university. I just know, generally speaking, you go to a university. And if you happen to take a religion course, particularly one that deals with Christianity, just scratch it. If, if, I, if I'm just, 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 I don't know what they call it, religion. One, I just call it heresy 101, abomination 102. They're going to they're load every gun they have at you to try to undermine any confidence you would have in the Word of God and, and believing that this, is, that this matters whatsoever. And they will love to come to a passage like this in Genesis 19 and here in Genesis 18 that God is just. And you've, you know the question that gets thrown out all the time. You've been thrown at you. Well, if God is good... He clearly isn't all-powerful. Look at the world. And if he's all-powerful, then certainly he's not good. And if he's good, he's not all-powerful. Just look at the world. Just, just let's, let's, let's put God in the bar. Let's stand before it and look at the test. And then we'll try to figure out what God is like as we look at him here. Of course, men and women of God never start in that place they always start with God himself and what God has revealed, and then they try to understand what's happening on the basis of that. And that's really where Abraham starts. He's raising the questions, but he's trying to understand. He knows God is righteous. And that is the standard. You see, there's not a standard of right and good that God's answering to. God is the good. God is the righteousness. God is righteous. Now, you can do righteous things. You ought to do righteous things, but you'll never be righteous in this itself. God is love. You ought to do loving things. 
But you will never be love in the sense that God, whatever love is, whatever righteousness is, we know that because that's what God is. We've enjoyed uh, bicycle riding. I hope you've been out some of these nights, this clear skies and this full moon. Oh, my goodness. What a moon. I uh, took that with my camera on my phone. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful pictures of the moon. Of course, you know that the light we're seeing there is not from the moon, is it? It's originally from the sun. It just reflects. It reflects. And that's whatever goodness, whatever righteousness we have. Its it's source is not us. It's, It's from him, the sun, the eternal sun. It is from God himself. So the key to this passage is, again, trying to understand his righteousness in the face of what's going on. And, and that, that God could be anything but righteousness. Abraham says that's, that's it's nonsense. It's, it's desecration. It, it, it can't be far, far be it from you that that's even possible. That, used, that phrase, far be it, is used over and over in the Old Testament, all kinds of stories. Uh, King Saul is in the middle of a battle, and he's got his son Jonathan and all the soldiers are fighting. It's one of those long, protected, all-day battles. And, and King Saul, as he was prone to do, gave a very foolish command. He, he said, Curses the man who eats food until the evening when I'm avenged to my enemy. So none of my soldiers, nobody eats anything, nobody eats anything until this battle is done. The only problem with that, his son Jonathan's out there fighting. He never heard the command. If you remember the story, there comes a point where Jonathan comes across a, a treasure trove of honey, and he's starving to death. He eats some of the honey, goes on with his fighting. They win a great battle. But after the battle, the word gets back that, that Jonathan has uh, eaten honey. He's, eaten, he's disobeyed the command of his father. And Saul, probably to save face, says, well, too bad. He's still got to die. And it provoked a mutiny among God, Saul's own people. First Samuel 14, 45, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? The one who's worked his great salvation in Israel, he was the one that led us in this battle. And then they use the phrase that we're looking at, far from it, unthinkable, no way, outrageous. As the Lord lives, there shall be not one hair of his head fall to the ground. And that's exactly what Abraham says as he raises his possibility that God is anything else but absolute justice and righteousness. He says, far be it, unthinkable. That's what Abraham's prayer is about. Lord, I, I'm trying to understand what you're going to do in Sodom. I'm trying to how to reconcile that with your righteousness, but I know you're righteous. I don't have all the answers at this moment. I'm looking to understand. I'm going to talk to you about it, but I know you're right. I know that. Now, folks, we know a great deal more, a great deal deeper revelation of God and his ways. That's a treasure trove for us. But let's admit it, there are still many times and many things I look at in this world, I look at in people's lives, and for all the truth I can bring from scriptures to bear, there's still a part of it which I go, I just, I don't yet understand. I don't have it all figured out. But this is what I do know, God is right. And I can trust him that he is right. There's an old story, preacher's been using it for a hundred years not quite that long. Lloyd Douglas, the author of The Robe, several other novels. The Robe was about a, a fictional account of Jesus' crucifixion. When he was a university student, he lived in a boarding house. And downstairs on the first floor, there was an elderly, sickly sort of former music teacher. And they had a little daily ritual. He'd come down the steps and he'd open that old morning's door and he'd say, well, what's the good news? And the gentleman would pick up his tuning fork, tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that's middle C. He was middle C yesterday. 
It'll be middle C tomorrow. It'll be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle C. My friend, in this world, until we get all the answers before the Lord's throne one day, I still know there's a God who's just and right, and what he's doing is right. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Verse 36, for from him and to him and through him are all things to him be the glory forever. For God's sake, pray. For righteousness' sake, for the righteous, pray. We read in verse 26. You've been sitting for a while. Let's stand up as we read this passage. Beginning with verse 26. And the Lord said... If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have understood, undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the righteous, of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40. I will not do it. Then he said, oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Thank you. Be seated. Now, to your ears, and quite honestly to my ears, you read that, and it sounds like maybe the kind of conversation you'd have in a car lot or at some um, third-world country at a bazaar. Or I can imagine in the, the booths of Jerusalem, of people trading, making deals, doing, doing business that way. It sounds like bargaining. It sounds like, like, like haggling. Let me give you some lessons on haggling to see, then let you make your decision about what it is. There are rules of haggling, Okay. Now, I, there's a lot of details in this. Some of you are really good at that and better me. But let me tell you, let's, let's imagine I'm going to sell, God forbid, this pulpit. No, it's not for sale. But let's imagine I'm going to sell this. Steve Lewis is going to buy the pulpit. And uh, Steve says to me, he's interested in the pulpit. And if somehow I have the rights to the pulpit. And, and uh, he says, I want to buy that pulpit and I'll give you 20 bucks. I know, 20 bucks? That'll cost you 1000 bucks, buddy. Now, in that very moment, in that first opening bids, there's going to be a lot of negotiation, talking back and forth. But in that opening bid, something very important has happened. There's no way when we're done with this whole negotiation that Steve will pay anything less than 20 bucks because he started there. He's going to give me at least 20 bucks. And on the other hand, I'm not going to get more than 1,000 because I, I agreed already at the beginning. So there's, there's some big parameters put here at the beginning. And then haggling is always just working down to the selling point you find in between. Now, it may be that when, as Abraham is praying, he's, he, he comes with this, he's concerned about the justice of God and trying to figure that out. And he says, what if there are 50 people? And maybe what he expected the Lord to come back and say, oh, no, 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 I couldn't save it for 50 people. But, oh, maybe for 1,000 people, if there's 1,000 righteous there. And he thought he was going to negotiate that. But that's not the way it happens at all, is it? God accepts his original. He says, I'll take the deal. And by the way, I don't think this prayer happened in the, the short way we just read it. I think, I think Abraham's thinking, and, and, and he comes back and says, well, what about 45? And there's amazement. God's so merciful, he'll save it for 45 and 40 and 30 and 20 and, and 10. 
He thought he was going to have to talk God into being more merciful, and he discovers that the mercy of God is greater than he even knew how to comprehend. He's praying for people. If he knows them, he probably doesn't like what he knows about them. They're people nothing like himself except for Lot, and he had some reason not to feel real good about Lot. But he's praying for them. He's interceding for them. He's blessing. He's working on their behalf. And every Christian, every righteous man and woman of God, made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, your life ought to be blessing people who don't know God, who are far from God, who may hate God. Your life ought to be a blessing to them. You see that all the way through the Bible. Abraham's grandson Jacob, he would cause the flocks of Laban, his ungodly uncle, to be multiplied. Later, the great-grandson of Abraham, Joseph, ends up in Egypt. And Potiphar, this Egyptian man, has prospered because Joseph is working in his life. Genesis 39.5, from that time he made him overseer of his house and over all that he had. And the Lord blessed that Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. Later in the book of Joshua, Rahab's whole family, godless people that they were, were all saved because of Abraham or because of Rahab's faith in the living God. Later in the New Testament, Paul's on a ship at sea. It's, it, by every right, everybody knows it's, it, was, it was doomed to sink. And yet God chose not just to save Paul, but he granted everyone on that ship life because Paul was a part of that group. Your life and my life as Christians ought to be to be a blessing to people who are far from God, who don't, their life ought to be better because we are somehow connected to them. If you have a pagan boss, he ought to be blessed by the godly Christian servants that are working for him. And if you're a, a Christian boss, you ought to be a blessing to those pagans who work for you. We ought to be in our neighborhoods everywhere. That ought to be the case. Abraham discovers that God's desire to save is so great that even a few, just a few who love God will save the many who are righteous, unrighteous, and who are wicked. We are to be like salt and light, Jesus says. Salt preserves if I have a bowl of oatmeal, boys and girls, if I have a bowl of oatmeal, do I get a big barrel of salt and dump it on my oatmeal? No, just a little bit. Just a little bit changes everything. And that's what we're called to be, salt and light. Jeremiah 5.1, run to and fro from the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. God says, if I could find one righteous person in Jerusalem, it would cause me to spare that city. You know the verse, Proverbs says, righteousness, even a little, just a few righteous will exalt a nation. Sin is a reproach to my people. What I'm trying to say, beloved in Christ, and there's never been a more relevant passage for us than what it is now and what it's probably going to be for the rest of your life living in this culture. We are going to be a minority. We are going to be few. But don't you think that your life of righteousness and purity and holiness produced by Jesus Christ and the, and the beauty of Christ in your life, that it will count for nothing. It will count for everything. Where you have righteous people, even a few of them, in any country, in any people group, it means that, that God's blessing can be there and there's still hope. There's still an opportunity for, for salvation. There's still a chance that the, that the light will show and people will come to faith in Him. Well, finally we end with pray for the lost sake. For the lost sake, pray. He's praying for people he doesn't really know well, probably doesn't like them much. And yet he's praying for them. And we ought to pray for the lost and for wickedness. We ought to think about how we sound to the lost world around us. People get a sense that we're praying for them, that we love them in the name of Christ. 
where they know by listening to what we say in all the many ways we say it, that we are passionate for God to do a work in their life and grace. The great missionary book of the Old Testament, Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people? They don't, they're so confused. They don't know the right from the left. They don't know anything about me. They don't know anything about me. I have compassion on them. Jonah, Abraham comes and you see a compassion and a boldness and a humility as he prays. Will you then sweep away the place, the whole city, the whole place and not spare it if there are 50 righteous? 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? If you have a friend who comes to you and they say, uh, you got to tell me, why do you live the way you do? Why are you like the way you are? Why your life is so different? You tell them that you're there because you're hoping to hold back the time before God brings them to judgment. And that you love them. And that you're committed to praying for God to open their heart and mind to see what maybe they can't see yet. But they would know and follow Jesus. Because one day they, like Abraham and like me and like you, are going to stand before the judge. The judge of all the world. That judge is just. He does what is right. He knows every word, every phrase, every motivation, everything we've done in this secret and not so secret, everything we've left undone that we should have done. He knows every bit of it. How's that going to be for you? When you stand before that judge, and you are, how's it going to be for you? There may be someone here saying, well, it's too late for me. If you, with what I have done, what I know, there's no, yeah, it is too late for you. It's too late for me too, except for one thing. There's only one hope. And that is what would come from Abraham, what all the Old Testament point to, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross would cover that sin. The judge himself would take the judgment. At the cross, he would die in our place. So now, any of us, no matter what, we can stand before that judge, not because we have worked ourselves up and we have matured and we have evolved. No, no. But because we receive the gift of his shed blood, his covering, and the evidence of him in our life is beginning to work. You see it in Psalms 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. We've been telling the story of Abraham, and we're not done. There's a lot of iniquity in Abraham's life. There's still more to come. But he's among the righteous because his sin was covered. How do you do that? How can you have that today? Again, Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's how you come to Christ. That's how you get... Get this life that Jesus has. You come to him, you trust him, you acknowledge. You don't try to cover up your sin. You don't try to excuse it. You don't try to put it in its best life. You admit that you've been the enemy of God. You've lived as your own little God yourself. And out of it's flowed all kinds of things. And you say, God, I confess that. I admit that. Please forgive me. I, I, I believe your word. I believe Jesus died in my place. I ask you to cover my sins and to make me yours and begin a new work in my life. Help me more and more to show your righteousness that you will have to produce because I can't do it. But I trust in what you've done for me. Have you done that?
No decision will be more important today than for you to choose to bow your head and make that your first prayer, to call upon Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. And then to follow him in baptism. Jesus made it clear that we become his disciples and then we're to be baptized. Express that in believer's baptism. Make, take your stand and then grow in your life in him. And those of us who are his, may he today challenge us, fathers, mothers, grandparents, those of us who care about our kids and our church. We're in a multi-generational deal here, folks. Abraham needed this teaching, everything that's going on here, because he's got to teach his children and their children and their children all the way to our responsibility too. Dads particularly, you ought to be the, the best prayer in your family ought to be you, Dad. I know it's not Father's Day, but I'm just telling you, you ought to lead in that. That's your task above all else, not put anything less than the others praying, but yours, that's your job. How are you, how is your prayer life? And, and are you praying for others? How are you interceding? That we as a church, maybe we ought to repent because the truth is we schedule prayer meetings around here and they're usually the poorest attended, the hardest one to get people to, to come and pray for other people. Even in our worship service, when we have times of intercessory prayer, for many of us, let's just be honest, it's the dullest, most boring, deadest part of the whole service. Get on with something else. A week from Monday, we've got another prayer meeting, Sunday, Monday morning, 6 a.m. That's not a little thing. That's a big thing. It'll mean adjustment to schedules, changing priorities. But I don't think it's a little thing to come down here and to intercede together. There is power in that. Circle it. A week from Monday. There are other opportunities for prayer. Wednesday night we have a group that prays. You can form a group, you don't, but pray. Get together and pray. Pray alone and intercede for one another in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us be together today. There are decisions to be made. For some, the decision may be just to say, well, it was interesting, it was whatever, and go on and never give another thought to this. But for many of us, I pray that your spirit will draw us call us to intercession, to call us to, to pray for our own children, to see how that's so vital to that, to pray for, for the lost, to pray for the righteous, that, that we could be faithful servants and really good salt and good light to the world around us, for the work of our church and other faithful churches here and around the world, to pray for those you've called to take this gospel message, few in number, minorities where they go, with other Christians and those groups of people, but Lord, that you would use them to to bring many to you before that day of judgment has to come. Father, teach us to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.